Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning, I want to talk to you about the sovereign grace of God. You know, people often like to listen to the grace of God. Hey, because it's God's grace. It's undeserving to sinful people. And yet, what people may not necessarily like is when the word sovereign is attached to it. Because that grace is dependent on God Himself and it is not dependent on us at all. In fact, this week and even next week, we will see more of the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God. And even as we continue on, we've seen some of it through the book of Genesis, but particularly this week and next week, we will see much of the sovereign grace of God. And we'll see how it works out in such a way that God's sovereign grace creates a people for Himself and how God's sovereign grace chooses a people for Himself. And He does all this for His glory, for His name's sake. And I pray that as we think through such a subject, it wouldn't cause us to despair, it wouldn't cause us to doubt, but it would cause us as believers to be thankful to rejoice in our sovereign God who pours out His sovereign grace. This morning we will once again see something of the character of God. And I pray that it would humble us, it would cause us to be a thankful people, a people who throws ourselves unto Him and who wants to live only for His glory. I've divided this morning's passage into two sections. Firstly, the provision, you know, we see God's sovereign grace in the provision of the promised Son in verses 19 through to 21. And then we'll see the God's sovereign grace in the choosing of the younger son. So God's sovereign grace in the provision of the promised son and God's sovereign grace in the choosing of the younger son. So firstly, God's sovereign grace in the provision of the promised son in verses 19 through to 21. It reads, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Abraham fathered Isaac. So we're beginning a new section right now. Where it says, these are the generations of Isaac. And and this is significant. And we've talked about this before. Because the Bible, you know, when it was first written when scriptures were first written, it didn't have chapters or verses. Chapters and verses were added much, much later just to help with the reading of scriptures. 
And particularly in the way the book of Genesis then, back when it was first written, how it was divided was, it was divided according to the phrase, these are the generations of. And there are ten of them in the book of Genesis. And this is how the book of Genesis is divided, according to these are the generations of. Now we've seen some of it already. And we've just finished the generations of Terah, which started in Genesis 11. What became of Terah and his family? And we saw the whole journey of Abraham, Terah's son. And then in Genesis 25, 28, 12 to 18, uh, that short little section, it, w- it talked about the generations of Ishmael. It, it's also a short section, but s- certainly a division there. And it's showing of how God kept his promise even to the non-elect line, the non-promised line as well, that God was faithful to keep his promise. And now we come to the next significant section, which is the generations of Isaac. Or in other words, what became of Isaac and his family. And we'll see what happens to that over the next 10 chapters or so. And notice again in verse 19 it says, and this is Isaac, Abraham's son. So this is highlighting the fact that this is now continuing on the promise line through Abraham. Abraham, the one whom God had chosen. And that promise line through which the covenant promises and the plan of redemption would move forward. Now God is talking about that through the line of Isaac. Now verse 20 says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac was 40 years old when he got married to Rebekah, the daughter of an Aramean from Padan Aram. Now the place Padan Aram, it, it just means the plain or the field of Aram. This was the area near Haran. If you remember from way back in Genesis, uh, towards the end of Genesis 11 and the start of Genesis 12, this was the area where Abraham and his family had previously stopped and lived there for a while. So it would seem like then, you know, as Abraham moved on from Haran, his brother and family continued to be there. And so people from the the plain or the field of Aram, which is around uh, Haran, were called as the Arameans. So, you you know, you're from the plain of Aram, you'll be called the Arameans. And so what this is pointing to is that Isaac got married to Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean. There's two things that is highlighted to us. First, that Isaac did not marry a Canaanite. And unlike his brother Ishmael, who got married to an Egyptian, Isaac got married to someone from Abraham's family itself, from Padan Aram, from the Arameans, the daughter of Bethuel, from the Shemitic line of Noah. So, so far, everything is looking great. 
No, Isaac is the promised seed from Abraham. He's married to Rebecca, who's from Abraham's extended family. Great. But there's a problem. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren. So now the question comes again, how is the promised line then going to move forward? How are the covenant blessings of God going to be passed down? How is God's plan of salvation going to come about? Now we saw this issue of barrenness with Abraham's wife Sarah. Now you might say, but why this issue with barrenness? Well, on the one side we might say, well, this is part of the curse of sin and death. That is working out. If you remember, you know, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord told Eve that she would have difficulty in childbearing and even childrearing. And this barrenness is part of that curse of sin and death working out. So that's one, one way to look at it, why this barrenness. But then we might ask, but, but why is it particularly seen in the line of promise? God's chosen line. Remember Isaac's brother Ishmael, the one who is not from the promised line. We saw last week that he has 12 sons. I mean, he's becoming a great nation as the Lord has promised. But Isaac, who is of the promised line, he has no sons at this point. So why the barrenness again in the promised line? Well, because it is to show that God's promises depend entirely on God himself to fulfill them and not man. Yes, in one sense, every birth is a work of God. Every child that is born is a work of God. But especially with a barren womb, where it's humanly impossible for someone to conceive and bring about life from that dead womb. This is particularly significant. Because now God has to supernaturally bring about this birth. Because it's not going to happen naturally as, as, Jacob, as Isaac and Rebecca come together in marriage union. So that now, when Rebecca, the barren woman, gives birth to a child or children, it is understood that this is God's supernatural work. It could not have happened any other way. It is not through human ability whatsoever. So this barrenness is to teach Isaac and Rebekah as well that God's plan to fulfill his purposes would not come about by human might or strength. Or you could even you know, take the broader principle that God's plan of salvation, which is going to come through this promised line, it wouldn't come about by human strength or human choice or human determination. God's plan of salvation would come about only by God's sovereign grace and power and not through human effort or choice. 
And what we can take from this is this, that God's plan of salvation, even today, it comes about only by his sovereign power and his grace. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you understand the reason why you are a believer is only because of God's sovereign grace. That the Lord is the one who has made you spiritually alive. Because before we came to know Christ, we were all spiritually dead. And we who were spiritually dead were then made spiritually alive by God's sovereign grace and power. There was no way we could spiritually make ourselves alive. Listen to the words of John 1 verses 12 and 13. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And how are the children of God described? Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The children of God are born of God. Not by flesh, not by blood, not by the will of man, but of God. So God's plan of salvation is entirely a sovereign work of God. We know that as believers in Christ now, and God is teaching Isaac and Rebekah that same lesson. Now Isaac knew that the promised line would come through him. God had promised that. And now that Rebekah was barren, he knew that it would take a supernatural work of God to bring about this promised seed so that the plan of redemption would move forward. Because of all people, Isaac would understand this. Because he was the promised seed and he was born to his barren mother when his mother was 90 years old. So he would understand the supernatural work of God of everyone else. And so unlike his father Abraham, Isaac doesn't take things into his hands and you know, get a female servant to somehow continue the line. At least in this instance, I would say he responds uh, better than his father Abraham. Look at how he responds, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac prays. Notice here, Isaac doesn't say, okay, God is sovereign. He will bring about what he has promised, so I don't need to pray. He doesn't say God's plan of salvation is completely his supernatural sovereign work. So whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. No, he doesn't have this defeatist kind of attitude. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because Isaac understands that the Lord is fully responsible to bring about his plan, that the Lord is fully responsible to bring about the promised child, 
Isaac petitions before the Lord. He prays to the Lord. You know, this is an important fact for us to understand. God is sovereign. And he will bring about his sovereign plan and purposes. Yet, as his children, we are to pray. Both of these are true and we have to hold it together. And you know, there are plenty of examples of this in the Bible. About God's sovereignty, yet man having to pray. Let me just give you two or three examples. At the end of the story of Job, God comes to Job's friends. You know, his friends who were meant to be a comfort and meant to give him good counsel. They've not been helpful whatsoever. In fact, they've given him bad counsel, things that were not true. And so in Job uh, 42.8, God comes to Job's friends who have given him foolish advice. And God says this to his foolish friends. He says, offer up burnt offerings and let Job pray for you that I won't deal with your folly. So that's God's sovereign will, right? Offer up burnt offerings and let Job pray for you. Why? So that I won't deal with your folly. Now look at the next verse, Job 42.9. God accepted Job's prayer and so he relented from dealing with them according to their folly. You see that? God had purposed that Job would pray and God would listen to Job and then he would not deal with their folly. Now turn to the New Testament. Romans 9, and we'll look at this chapter a little bit more in detail later. It's all about God's sovereign election in salvation. And right after this whole entire chapter where Paul is talking about sovereign election and salvation, just turn to the very next chapter, Romans 10 and verse 1. Paul says, I'm praying to God for their salvation. The same Paul who has said, God is utterly sovereign in salvation. In chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, I'm praying to God for their salvation. See, there's no contradiction here. The Lord is sovereign to bring about what he has purposed. But he has also ordained the means by which these purposes would come to pass. And prayer is one of the means by which God accomplishes his plans and his purposes. So, so it means that God in his sovereignty, he hasn't just planned out the outcome of his plan, but how that plan will come about as well. And that's where prayer comes in. Because in God's sovereignty, in his sovereign plan, prayer then becomes one of the means, one of the ways by which God will accomplish his plan. So it's not like God has planned something and, you know, as we pray, we're trying to move God this way and that way. No, he, his plan will come to pass. And yet the prayer is one of the means by which God has ordained he will accomplish 
his plan. I want you to think about this. If God is so sovereign and will accomplish all his plans, I want you to understand he doesn't need our prayers. No, he can bring about all that he has purposed without our prayers. And yet God in his grace, he wants to involve us in his sovereign work. Such that when we pray, he has ordained that he will bring about his purposes through that prayer. It's a wonderful thing that this sovereign God would involve us pitiful creatures who are his children to be involved in his sovereign work. Such that when we pray, the sovereign hand of God moves and accomplishes his purposes. And I would say it's the same reason why we are to evangelize, even though God is entirely sovereign in salvation. Because again, evangelism is one of the means by which God has ordained to bring someone to saving faith. You know, in fact, many of you sitting here who are Christians who have come to saving faith and have become Christians, the reason why you became Christians and came to saving faith is because somebody shared the gospel with you at some point, for most of you. That was the means, that person coming and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, that was the means by which God had already planned through that you would be saved. So when we understand things like this, like our prayers, our evangelism, as God-ordained means to accomplish His plans and in purposes, then we can confidently pray. We can confidently evangelize. Because ultimately it's not dependent on us, but He is giving us the privilege to be involved in His work. And we can be confident that God will accomplish his sovereign work. Isaac's prayer was the means that God used to accomplish his purpose of providing what he had promised through Rebecca. And what you may not have realized is that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah was born to him. If you look down at verse 26. So Isaac was married when he was 40. He has these children when he's 60. So that's a period of 20 years of waiting. Now we don't know whether Isaac prayed for all those 20 years or some of it or towards the end of it. The you know, scripture doesn't make that clear. But we, what we know is he did pray and God in his perfect time after 20 years answered his prayer. So we too can pray. Even persistently and patiently knowing that our sovereign Lord will hear and will bring about what he has purposed. Brothers and sisters, I just really hope that, you know, when, when you hear this aspect of God's sovereign grace and his sovereignty over things, 
It would not cause you to not pray or, you know, have that kind of uh, whatever will be, you know, God has planned it so he'll bring it to pass. No, I, I pray that as you listen to these words of how Isaac prayed, it would encourage you to pray. It would encourage you to pray regularly for our evangelistic efforts as a church. That we would bear fruit. That you would pray confidently and regularly that God would bless the preaching of God's word from this pulpit. That you would pray regularly for the salvation of the children in our midst. That you would pray that we would become more like Christ. Even as we live according to how God has designed us as one people of God. That we would pray for other churches and others who are lost. That we would pray for one another's needs. Confidently knowing that this is our sovereign God. So he can bring to pass what he has purposed. And only he can do that. Knowing that prayer is one of the God-ordained means that God will bring about his purposes. And really to not pray, you know who doesn't pray? It's unbelievers. Because they don't believe in God. So we as believers should pray. Why? Because we believe in this sovereign God that he can do things, that he will accomplish his purposes. And prayer is one of the means and we believe that and therefore we pray. Because we believe he is God and we are not. And he has given us this privilege so we can pray to him and that is the means by which he will accomplish his plan. So we see God's sovereign grace in the provision of the promised son as Isaac has prayed to the Lord and God gives him the answer. Now when the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, Rebekah conceived, but not just one son, but two sons, twins. And here we come to our second point, which is the sovereign grace of God and the choosing of the younger son in verses 22 to 26. Verse 22 says, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The children struggled within her. You know, most pregnancies at some point, you know, the mothers would say, yeah, I've got some difficulties during the pregnancy. But it's not that kind of struggle. Really, you know, the the word, it's more of violent struggle. Literally, the word is used of crushing or, or smashing. So the idea is that these children are fighting and smashing each other in the womb. And we've already seen, you know, this 
sibling rivalry, haven't we? Already in Genesis, as we've gone through so far. Between Cain and Abel. And there's a rivalry there, and then Cain finally kills Abel. Because he didn't like the fact that God had chosen him. Then there's the rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael. We saw just a few weeks ago where Ishmael is aggressively mocking Isaac. And where then Sarah saw that this was a threat because if he stays for long, he's going to kill Isaac. And so Isaac, uh, so Ishmael was sent away. And now we have these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, who will also become rivals. And at, a, at one point, Esau will also try to kill Isaac. So it's all that same pattern of conflict. That conflict that God had said first in the garden. Of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that will keep going on. And so now we get a preview of that conflict in Rebecca's womb. Just as a side note, you know, it struck me afresh that, you know, in these, the way these two unborn twins in the womb, they're called as children, even as they're fighting each other. In other words, the Bible treats them as persons in the womb itself. Isn't it so opposite to what the world says today? Because what the world says is what's in the mother's tummy is just an it or a, or a lump of cells. Or, uh, and they say, oh, it's only at birth this, uh, you know, is considered a person. And so then they would argue, my body, my choice. And so they would support things like abortion. But you see, this is not my body, my choice, or anything of that sort. Here are two different bodies inside the mother. Two different bodies that are identified as children and who are fighting each other. See, that's why abortion, you know, in our society is such an evil, because it really is killing another person. So these two children now, they're smashing each other in Rebecca's womb. And you can imagine with all this smashing, in fact, this word is even used later on where it talks about, you know, when somebody smashed someone's skull and broke it. So it's like violent fighting, violent smashing. And this would have caused a lot of pain for Rebecca. Physical pain, literally would have caused physical pain, you know, as all this is going on in her womb. And so Rebecca doesn't know what to make of all this. I mean, she knows this is not normal. And so she says, why is this happening to me? Why so much pain during my pregnancy? And she's concerned. Is something going to happen to the baby or babies? I don't know if at this point she knows it's twins. And will she survive herself? You know, all this pain in her pregnancy. Why is all this happening? See, the pregnancy was answer to prayer, but it's not what they expected. And sometimes it can be like that for us too, right? 
we pray for something and we get that and the Lord answers in a slightly different way and then we're like, why Lord? But we shouldn't then be bitter with God, but it should actually cause us to further rely on him. And that's exactly what we see with Rebecca. She senses something is seriously wrong here. And so she goes to inquire of the Lord. She prays and asks God for guidance. And this again, it, it shows Rebecca's reliance on the Lord, just like her husband Isaac, and the Lord answers her. Look at verse 23. It says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So this is what the Lord is saying. Rebecca, you're going to have twins. And these two twins, they're going to become two nations. From one of them, Esau, will come the nation of Edom. And from Jacob will come the nation of Israel. And just as there will be this ongoing division and conflict between these two brothers, it will carry on even between the two nations, between Israel and Edom. And it says one of them will be stronger. And as we will see, Esau will be the more stronger and bigger brother. But it says, but the older, that's Esau again, will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Now, this is very surprising. Because during those ancient times, the firstborn was the main guy. The oldest son was the main guy who would rule the house, so to speak, after the father. He would be the next main figure. The older firstborn son would carry on the family line forward. His was the birthright. And he would receive the great honor and the inheritance and everything else. But here the Lord says, the older will serve the younger and not the other way around, as a, you know, compared to the custom of the day. He's saying that Jacob would be the prominent one. And then even later, as they become nations, we see that the Edomites would be regularly subjugated by the Israelites. You know, one thing that this section should remind us is that when the, when the world thinks of people to choose, it thinks of, oh, the stronger one, or oh, oh, the older one. They're the ones who will rule over the younger and the weaker ones. That's the general worldly human mentality. You know, but the Lord doesn't follow that pattern as the world expects. He doesn't follow the norm of the day or the worldly standards of what may be deemed as wise. And really, in what he's doing here is he's showing his people, he's showing the Israelites as they're listening to this story said of who he is and how he works. That he doesn't always take the path that we might expect him to 
stake to accomplish his plans and purposes. Why? So that we will marvel at his works. And as we marvel at his works and see how great a God he is, it would cause us to put our trust in him and his purposes. And he does this again and again. I'll just give you a couple of examples. If you think of King David. I mean, he was the youngest of eight brothers. And compared to that outward experience and the height of other brothers, David was nothing. You know, by worldly standards, he wouldn't have been chosen as king. And yet the Lord chose him. If you think of our Lord Jesus as he came down as a human babe into this world. Scripture says that he was very ordinary in his appearance. He was born in poverty. There was nothing impressive about him on the outside that the people would look at him and think, this is the king of the Jews? This is the savior of the world? This is the king of kings? I mean, he's just an ordinary guy. Yet that is what God often does. He works in ways that we don't expect to show forth the greatness of his glory and his power. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the Lord's saying, two boys are going to come, who are going to become nations, and there's going to be conflict with, between them. But against the norm of the society, against what the world would think, the younger, the weaker one will be the chosen one and will be served by the older, stronger one. Now, the next few verses, we also get some details about these two children, even as they're born. Verse 24, it says, When our days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in our womb. Now that's just emphasizing exactly as the Lord said. The Lord said she would have twins, and that's exactly what has happened. You know, similar to even in creation, that creation week as well. The Lord said this, and when it happened, it said exactly as he said, it came about. Verse 25 says, the The first one came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. So the older twin, he has this ruddy complexion and his whole body, you know, is covered with hair and he's called Esau. You know, some interesting things here as we will read further is that Esau's nickname I guess you could, you could say that. Or his other name, Edom, is from the word red because of his ruddy complexion. And that's what Edom means. And funnily enough, you know, Esau and the nation of Edom will be associated with this place called Zaire. 
And this word za'ir sounds a lot like the word in the Hebrew for hairy. So it's, it's almost like, you know, Esau who came out red and hairy, he's nicknamed red, and he's going to live in the place that's called his hairy place. So while Esau is named after his appearance at birth, his brother is named after his action. Look at verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the younger twin comes out holding the heel of the older one. And so he's named Jacob. See, because in the Hebrew, heel is akov. And so because heel is akov and he comes out holding the heel of his brother, he's named Yaakov or Jacob, as we know in English. Meaning heel grabber or one who takes by the heel. And the grabbing of this heel, you know, it's as if baby Jacob, he's, he's trying to get ahead of his brother. You know, wanting to be first. Or perhaps even just wanting to trip his brother from behind. And it would be a sign of things to come. It would be a sign of the ongoing conflict between him and his brother. And that one day he would overtake his brother. And as Jacob grows up, as his name suggests, he will be someone who tries to grab things by force or or cheat others, deceive others, trip others, trip others, figuratively speaking, and deceive others. That's what Jacob is going to be as he grows up. So you have these two sons being born to Rebekah. And Isaac. Now I want you to turn to Romans 9. And Apostle Paul will tell us, we read that this morning, and Apostle Paul will tell us that God choosing the younger son, Jacob, to be, God is choosing him to be the one who carries the promised line, the one who will be served by the older brother. And Apostle Paul will say, that this choosing of the younger one, it's a paradigm or a pattern or an example of God's sovereign election in salvation. That God is sovereign over the salvation of individuals and this is a pattern or an example of that is what Apostle Paul will say as he looks at Genesis 25. Now let me just give you a quick Background to, before we get into Romans 9, to the book of Romans. You know, in the first few chapters of Romans, Apostle Paul will emphasize that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. He, he will emphasize that and, you know, make that point clearly over those first few chapters. And by the end of chapter 8, he's then assuring Christians that absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
But then the natural question comes. But how can that be true? Because there are so many unbelieving Jews around. I mean, didn't God choose the nation of Israel, the line through Jacob? Didn't all the promises go to them? That, that plan of salvation didn't go to them? So has the word of God failed in this case? And then beyond that, then how are we as Christians going to have any assurance if God's word and plan of salvation has failed for them? So then Paul, addressing all this, says in Romans 9, 6, no, God's word hasn't failed. Because not all descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And what he's saying is this, yes, God sovereignly chose Israel that came from the line of Jacob as his people. But it's not that every single Jew will be saved. Only a remnant within that chosen nation will be saved. And so to make this point clear, Paul then says in Romans 9 and verse 8, he says, it's not the children of flesh. So if you think of children of flesh, we've seen already one child of the flesh, Ishmael, right? So it's not the children of flesh like Ishmael, but the children of promise, that are the children of God, children like Isaac. Now, someone might, you know, Paul is anticipating this, that, you know, now someone might say, well, you can't really compare Isaac and Ishmael. Because, I, because Ishmael was born through the slave woman, Hagar. So it's not really the pure line. Only Isaac was from the pure line. And so Isaac was special. And so that's why he was chosen. So you can't really compare them. So Paul is anticipating this. He says, okay, let's talk about then the children of Isaac and Rebekah. I mean, that's the pure line, isn't it? It's the promised line from Abraham is Isaac and Rebekah is also from Abraham's extended family. And so he says, these children from Isaac and Rebekah, they have the same father. They have the same mother. They even have the same pregnancy and born at the same time. And yet, only one of them is chosen for salvation. Look at Romans 9 and verses 11 through 13 as he talks about these two children, Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had nothing and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Notice what it says again. Before they were born, before the children were born, Though they had done nothing good or bad, God chose Jacob and not Esau. You say, why? 
It says there, so that God's purpose of election might remain because of him who calls. So in other words, God choosing Jacob and not Esau, it didn't have anything to do with some greatness with Jacob, but it had everything to do with God. This is God's sovereign grace. God sovereignly chose to show his grace to Jacob and not Esau. Now some would wrestle with this and say, well actually God looked in the future and and he saw Jacob would choose God and so God chose Jacob. Now there are a few problems with that kind of thinking. Because first of all scripture says, God is an all-knowing God who needs no counsel from anyone. So if God is either looking into the past or if he's looking into the future to learn something, then at some point there are things that he doesn't know. Then he ceases to be the all-knowing God. Now, if that's not a theological issue, secondly, Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So he doesn't consult anyone. He does everything according to the counsel of his own will. And so if, let's just, you know, let's just compromise and say, okay, you know, God is trying to learn something and he's looking into the future. But if, even if we were to suppose that, that God is looking into the future to see if Jacob would choose God, what does that tell you? God is then not working all things according to his will. God is working everything according to Jacob's will. Because he saw in future, it's Jacob's will. Jacob's going to choose me, so I'm dependent on him. So he's working everything according to man's will. So you have another theological problem there. And beyond these theological issues, that God chose Jacob because he knew Jacob would choose him in the future. That is not what the text is saying in Romans 9. In fact, it's just the exact opposite. Look again at Romans 9. Before they were born, before they did anything good or evil, God chose Jacob and not Esau. So they hadn't even done anything. They hadn't chosen or done anything at all. God says, before that, I chose Jacob and not Esau. And then Apostle Paul will go on to say in Romans 9, 15 and 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So ultimately, God sovereignly chooses a person and saves them because he chose to show his mercy and grace on them. 
Now, brothers and sisters, you know, if, if you're struggling with this, I don't want you to think, okay, so God is sovereign, so I guess, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. God will just do what he wants to do. So it doesn't matter what we do, you know, we're just robots. No, again, think of God is sovereign, we're still to pray. God is sovereign, we're still to evangelize. God is sovereign, man is still responsible. You see both these truths in the Bible. Just because we, we find difficulty with this doctrine, we can't just scratch it out or rip out that, those verses and say, you know what, I don't like those, so I'm going to take that off and I'll just go with the responsibility of man. We can't. We have to hold both of them together. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And we'll see some of man's responsibilities in the coming weeks as it pertains to even God's sovereignty. But we must hold these two things together and that ultimately God is sovereign in choosing individuals for salvation. Now as the Israelites are listening to this, no, again in the plains of Moab, what do you think they would have, you know, as they're applying it to themselves? You know, what are they thinking? Well, for starters, they would have understood, oh, we, we came from Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. And we've come about only by the sovereign grace of God. Because there were these obstacles, there was all this barrenness, and it was the supernatural work of God through our patriarchs that we even exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. This is God's doing that we are here. And then beyond that, the fact that they have become the people of God, again, they would realize this is not because they were somebody special. It's because God sovereignly chose them as his people. That's why they're the people of God compared to all the other nations at the time. Now, in applying this to us, believer, as believers, let me ask you, If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian, let me ask you, why are you a Christian? Why are you part of the people of God? Because you had the smarts and some others didn't? Because there was some goodness about you and others didn't? Why have we gathered as a people of God here? Because of God's sovereign grace. Because he chose us. And poured his grace onto us. That's why we're the people of God. That's why we're Christians. You know, we'll sing this hymn at the, at the end of this service. But I want... I want to read just a couple of stanzas from this hymn. From how sweet and awful is the place. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice 
and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. It's because of the sovereign grace and love and mercy of God that we are his people today. And really, when you think about how this is worked through in history, is God, because of his grace and his love, this sovereign Lord came down into this earth, into this sinful world, the second person of who he is, as Jesus Christ. And he lived among his creatures. And then he was tortured and mocked at. This sovereign Lord who surrendered everything to be mistreated by his sinful creatures. And then he died when he could have annihilated every single human being present there and in eternity past and eternity future. And yet he didn't do that. Instead, he was crucified on that cross and he died on that cross. Why? Because in doing so, he was taking the wrath of God on himself against sinful creatures like us. He was paying the price for our sin. And then he died and then he rose again, providing a way by which we can be forgiven and we can come to know this great God. It is the sovereign grace of God that we are his people. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, and if you're concerned, oh, I I don't know if I'm chosen of God or not. Let me tell you, friend, if you recognize that it is all about God's sovereign grace, it is all about his powerful, undeserving grace, then what that means for you is there is nothing about you There's not a single sin or anything about you that can keep you from being saved. Do you understand that, friend? It is precisely because God's grace is sovereign, it is able to overcome every sin and every obstacle and is able to save you. Do you understand? And if you recognize that, And if you recognize this sovereign Lord has come in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for your sins. To forgive you of your sins. To live for him. And you say, yes, I believe that. Then I would say, then turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in yourself. And follow after him. Because that is the evidence that you have fully put your trust in Jesus Christ. 
And for those of us who are Christians, I pray this sovereign grace of God in choosing a people would cause us to be humble. Because it really wasn't anything about us. Really is nothing about us. But it's everything to do with his grace. Everything to do with his sovereignty. May we be filled with joy and thankfulness. May it cause us to be humble before him and rely on him. And even as we think of others who are lost, let's recognize, no, this is God's sovereign grace. It's a powerful grace that can overcome anything. And God has given us the, the means of evangelism and sharing the gospel of Jesus with others, as well as prayer as means by which he accomplishes his purposes. So let's be busy about that, making his name known to others and trusting in God's good and sovereign purposes. Let's pray together. Father, would you, conf- would you forgive us? For so often we have an elevated view of ourselves and what we are capable of. And yet nothing humbles us more than the fact that we know, when we know that you sovereignly chose us in salvation. That was nothing about us. It was nothing about our determination. It was nothing about our will. But it had everything to do with your sovereign power and grace. Lord, we thank you for this. Give us joyful hearts as a result, knowing we are yours and therefore we are secure in our salvation. And therefore, nobody can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because it is all about you and your sovereign power and grace. May it cause us to be a humble people. May it cause us to be a thankful people. And may it cause us to be busy about living for your glory and making known to others those who do not know you about your sweet and sovereign grace. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.